everyone, this is Viv, and you're listening to the What Gives Podcast. So today we are joined by Catalyst Foundation's Caroline Wing Takaro. She is the founder of Catalyst Foundation, which works with rural communities in Vietnam to prevent trafficking and was actually featured on three episodes of the CNN Freedom Project. The foundation just celebrated their 20th anniversary, so congratulations, Caroline. I actually heard about the foundation and Caroline and her TEDx talk through an organization called the Union of Vietnamese Student Associations, UVSA for short, which is a youth-led nonprofit that aims to develop leaders within the Viet community. I'm Viet, by the way, if you haven't already caught on. But I just have to say that I've been inspired by your work ever since, Caroline, and I'm super happy to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. That's very sweet. I feel very old. (laughs) Oh, stop. Congratulations on the 20th anniversary. Thanks. Thanks. So before we jump into it, I hear that you have twin daughters, and this makes me so happy because I'm a twin myself, and I actually know five more sets of Vietnamese twins. So I don't know if it's something in the Viet blood, but I have to say that running this organization and raising two kids at the same time is definitely not easy. Are your daughters involved in the foundation at all? They like to say no, they definitely are not, (laughs) but they are. (laughs) Catalyst was born because of them. I started Catalyst because I adopted them from Vietnam, actually, when they were nine months old. And it was my first time returning to Vietnam to adopt them. And, you know, I had left Vietnam in 1975 with so many thousands of other Vietnamese. And when we adopted them, it was kind of like this big aha moment. Like, how can I not adopt all the children in the orphanage? That didn't make any sense. So then I thought, well, how, what else can I do to help? And, you know, the name Catalyst is actually a combination of their name, Cassidy and Natalie. We had a little girl that called them Catalie because she couldn't figure out who was who. Um, and so the closest thing I could find to Catalyst, and which also meant something to Catalie, sorry, was Catalyst. So they claim that they're not involved, but they're, you know, they, they're the ones that made it happen. <laughs> and how old are they now? They are 22, almost 23. So Uh, I started Catalyst just a few months after they came home. I was feeling very guilty. I was a new mom, and they were so little, and I felt really sad that I had to walk away from an orphanage and not help, and yet I was still raising these two humans. I I had no idea how to raise, still don't know how to raise. (laughs) And it started when they were babies, and then... Catalyst has changed many, many times, evolved, I would like to say, because of how I was parenting them. You know, what was changing in their life and what was making an impact in their life was making an impact on how Catalyst was serving others. So if you haven't already picked it up, I'm Vietnamese and I was raised by Vietnamese refugees like Caroline, which most Viet kids here are in the States. And I would love to hear how your background as a Viet and as a refugee influences and inspires your work? I think it didn't for a really long time. I think, you know, I'm a 1.5 Vietnamese generation, right? My parents brought us over and I arrived in the USA when I was just turned five. I was in a refugee camp, I believe, when I turned five. So I don't have actually real memories. I'm actually in the process of writing my memoir and it was 
a really difficult process. Well, it has been a really difficult process still in to ask my parents how we left and why we left and what their emotions were, because I didn't remember anything. And I have three brothers. I have one older and two younger. So here's a family of six that left Vietnam. And as we were growing up, we were not, we were told not to tell anyone that we were Vietnamese because of, you know, there was so much animosity about the war, about the Vietnam War or what the Vietnamese call the American War. And we were Vietnamese inside the house, but as soon as we left, we couldn't say anything. And so I really denied myself my own heritage, except for being in the house. And of course, you know, being in the house, you have to abide by Vietnamese rules. So my parents were very strict and I was the only girl and... I just kind of lived the life I thought I wanted, <laughs> you know, like I'm going to totally rebel against my parents and not do anything they say, but really I'm going to try to please you in every way possible and make you proud of me. So as I was growing up, I excelled, probably overachieved many, many different ways <laughs> uh, to make sure that my parents were proud of me. But I didn't realize and I didn't understand the sacrifices they had made for me until I became a parent. And I uh, was married then. I am not anymore. But I was married when I decided, you know, we decided we wanted to have children and I couldn't get pregnant. And so Vietnam was an option for international adoption. And I thought that would be an easy decision to adopt from Vietnam. Of course, you're from Vietnam. Why not adopt from Vietnam? But it wasn't my first choice. I, I thought, well, I don't know anything about the language or the culture or the history. I mean, I don't know anything. And why not pick Korea where I know less? (laughs) And there was, you know, even less pressure, but uh, I'm glad we chose Vietnam, of course. Um, And we found out, you know, that um, the girls were, uh, were born and were available for adoption. And it was that sense of being home, being in a motherland where I had never felt that connection before. I mean, it literally was landing and thinking, oh, I get it now. (laughs) Now I have babies and now I must leave a legacy and now I'm Vietnamese. (laughs) And it literally was like that overnight. I went from not being Vietnamese to, oh, I must be Vietnamese. I, this is what I have to pass on to my children. And so I kind of went, the opposite, I swung the opposite way. I actually even, with Catalyst, I started uh, the Vietnam Culture Camp to teach others about being Vietnamese because I didn't know enough about being Vietnamese. Yeah, I think that's such a common experience with Viet Q's. Viet Q meaning people who are Vietnamese but raised outside Vietnam or live outside of Vietnam. So people like me, I think it's such a common experience to push away the culture or be hushed about the refugee stories that I think the culture camp that you're doing and so much of the VQ art and literature are geared towards that. So I think it's a very important part of your foundation. And I would love to hear more about the culture camp and how it ties in with everything else. So it would have been our 20th year. It would have been our 20th culture camp um, in 2020, but there was this pandemic, so we had to cancel it. <laughs> but for 20 years, we have held camps in two locations, in the Midwest and on the East Coast, for families that have adopted children from Vietnam. About from 1992 to about 2002, in those 10 years, there was approximately seven to 800 children being adopted from Vietnam every year. And I felt like I met most of them (laughs) through culture camp. We are one of two in the whole world 
that is specific to Vietnam. And now we're the only one specific to Vietnamese adoptees. And the camp is to celebrate and incorporate Vietnamese culture, but also learn how to be proud of who they are and their own identity. Of course, is to teach their non-Vietnamese parents about Vietnam and its traditions, but also to talk about issues that are hot topics, you know, that you normally would put your rose-colored glasses on and ignore it, like racism and bullying and, you know, the politics and traveling. I mean, it's good and bad, but it's a connection for families and children that don't have that connection through their normal everyday life. But over the last 20 years, we've had over 3,000 families attend culture camp. And then we've had about a thousand counselors. So I feel like if we played the game that six degrees of separation from Catalyst, that'd be a a quick, (laughs) a quick connection. (laughs) The culture camp, though, it isn't the main mission, is it? It is not. It's actually just a side project. Catalyst Foundation is actually, like I said earlier, it's changed so many times over the last 20 years. But what it is, is an answer to help children and families that haven't been helped, haven't had a voice and haven't had an opportunity to be better because they no one's given them that, that opportunity. And, and I know that I can do it. And there are moments you know, throughout the 20 years that it's been hard, that I've, I've ended up crying or screaming or saying, I'm not going to do it anymore. But then how do you turn away, you know, from someone that doesn't need any more than $10 that month? Well, I, I can do that. So what are some of the main issues Catalyst Foundation aims to solve? And where in Vietnam and what population are y'all focused on? Well, our mission is to build communities to fight human trafficking. A quick history on Catalyst. Um, when we started in 1999 to about 2002, we were purely just helping orphanages, being the orphanages that my girls came from. When the girls were three, I watched a documentary, on, not a documentary, like a news show on TV in the U.S., and it showed the thing about Cambodian brothels. And there was an undercover cameraman, that a reporter that went in with a camera and the brothel owner said, oh, here you go. Here are all the girls you can pick from. And they paraded the girls out and the girls were ages five to 12. And you didn't say it on the news channel, on the story, but they were all Vietnamese girls. And I literally looked over at my girls and I said, what the crap? <laughs> These are Vietnamese girls. I mean, I had no idea that trafficking was even an issue. I mean, that's how big the rock I was living under, right? And when it dawned on me that it was happening to children, children that could have been my children or it could have been me, we literally overnight said, okay, I'm going to fix this. I was determined. I'm going to fix trafficking. So we, you know, in those months afterwards, we found organizations in Vietnam that were doing something about human trafficking. And most of them were international organizations that were helping victims. And so we kind of partnered with a couple of, uh, of organizations that were helping girls that had been victims of human trafficking. And that is the most depressing and heart-wrenching job I had ever done for two years. I literally cried every night hearing their stories. And I, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't mentally and physically do it anymore. I couldn't cry every night anymore because it was so frustrating to hear oh yes I'm going to make you better I mean, yes I'm going to raise your money to send you to school and um, get you the therapy that you needed but I still wasn't doing anything about trafficking and what it dawned on me was that 
trafficking was happening because of poverty and lack of education. The girls that were victims couldn't read, couldn't escape because they didn't know where they were, couldn't read the sign next to their building and call someone on the phone and say, I need help because they couldn't read the phone, you know, couldn't read the numbers on the phone. And they could obviously be literate, you know, they, they could speak, they could understand, but they didn't have the education. And so that was when we figured out that, okay, we're not going to listen to girls scream anymore. We're not going to listen to that anymore because we can actually put kids through school. If that's the answer, if that's the reason, then our answer is let's put every child we can meet in school. And that's how we started our current mission, which is building communities and building a community that's based on the foundation of every child can break the cycle of poverty they're in. And if they can break that cycle of poverty, then they can be that next generation that says, you can't sell me mom and dad because I'm going to bring more to this family. And not that their parents knew that they were selling into, but I can be more than, you know, a fourth grader. And that's what the average traffic victim was, was a fourth grader. So that's what we do. We build communities by providing an education to children first, making sure that every child has the opportunity to go to school. With that opportunity is what we call the Project Backpack program. Project Backpack is based on if you send your child to school, this is kind of like a little bribe. <laughs> if you send your child to school, I will give you food this month. Therefore, your child doesn't have to go work. And that was the problem we were having. We were spending months talking to parents about the value of an education, like a real sit down, go to school education versus I don't think my kids should go to school because we don't have enough food to eat and she has to go out and beg like I do, or she has to go out and, and be a laborer like I am. And the kids are starting to work at age five or six, going to work with their parents because it was poverty. So that was our incentive. You send their kid to school, don't miss a day. We'll give you a month's worth of food. Pretty easy. <laughs> and that, like I said, still takes months every year when we have a new family that joins the program. Every year it takes months, weeks to convince them that education is going to save them. Because, of course, they don't understand the value because the parent has never had that. And then we also do community development programs. The community development programs includes everything. Overall, it's to give whatever we can do to give that family a sense of dignity. So if it's a bathroom that they need or a house or an ability to learn how to read themselves as a parent or a job other than picking garbage or picking cow dung, life skills such as washing your hands, um, washing your vegetables and boiling your water. I mean, everything that you could possibly think of, we do on a very, very small scale. Communities that we serve through the last 10, 15 years have been communities of 50 to 100 families. So we know our, our members, our the Catalyst families, really well. We know what's going on in their life and what they need, and that's how we like to keep it. I mean, it, it'd be awesome to have a million dollars drop on me, but I would still only work with 50 families at a time. And then what we also do is the community piece, right? Meaning that we teach the community to act like a community. Uh, with Vietnamese culture, as you know, it's a very... Not self-centered, but it's very centered to your immediate family. Like, I'll help my grandma and my grandpa and my aunt and uncle, but I'm not going to help the neighbor down the street because I just want what she has or I don't want what she has. So what we're teaching is 
if the community can act as a whole community, you can actually protect yourselves, protect each other. And that's what we were really trying to do is this is how we're going to stop traffickers from coming in because we're all watching. We're all watching for the next stranger that, you know, offers my kid an opportunity. And we're going to teach you about that. Yeah, and I think that's so important to note that communities is what sustains communities. If you want to sustain impact in a community, let them lead. Let them tell you how they will grow. And that's how you'll grow families and grow wealth and grow education. And it's amazing that you're on the ground working within these Vietnamese communities, listening to them. And I know you're in Vietnam currently, and I'd love to hear about your current project. Yeah, so what we what I'm doing in Vietnam is to hopefully <laughs> save some money. <laughs> so with the global pandemic, we have lost a lot of our revenue. And with me here, it will help the staff, obviously. But our goal this year, in the last couple of years, but definitely hoping to finish it and accomplish it, is to have all of our families have a bathroom. Right now, our ethnic minority families live in a hamlet of other non-ethnic communities, non-ethnic families. And so they're kind of shunned upon and there's a lot of racism. And so they don't have running water to go to the bathroom. They're walking in the middle of the night because they want to be discreet. They want their privacy to find a bush or a tree. And, you know, sometimes that's quite a ways away. And so we, our goal is to put an outhouse in every, on everyone's land. And that dignity comes back and that pride comes back about just being human. That's awesome. That's an amazing goal. Well, Caroline, tell us about you. I want to hear about you personally and how you continue to stay strong and in the know about your work. Yeah. Tell us what drives you. Well, I turned 50 this year, which is quite an accomplishment, I think. <laughs> you made it. <laughs> <laughs> you made it. My girls have graduated from college and on to their master's. And I've always had a little bit of me that never felt good about me, and which is opposite of what I portray. I want the people I touch to feel good. You know, I want to be a positive impact in everyone's life. But I never felt that about myself. Till the last five years, I went through a divorce which is always a good wake-up call for everyone. But in that time, I also realized what was really important to me and what and who was really important to me, your circle of friends and the quality of life and what kind of life you're really leading. I was always telling people since I was mid-20s that you should love what you do, who you do it for, and why you do it. And and that's what I do. I love what I do. I love Catalyst, obviously, because that's my baby. Who I do it for is the community that I serve. I mean, I don't have to. It can be the community, the ethnic minority community that um, we're serving now in Vietnam, or it can be the community of culture camp families, or it can be my connection with counselors or just people I meet. And why I do it is because I truly, truly believe that we can each make a difference. It's a really sucky world right now. (laughs) And nothing is ever going to be great, right? And even at my worst, I always felt that it could get better. Always. And, And I think that's why I do it. I mean, I've been trying to be that person for a long time. And I'm so much happier and so much stronger for really living that now instead of just talking about it. And it's been a journey. It's been a journey of accepting mistakes and figuring out if you're going to learn from it or not. (laughs) It's been a journey of of adapting 
And uh, the, the key word this last year was pivot. Well, I've been pivoting my whole life. <laughs> and it's also an opportunity to create my own legacy, to be proud of who I am, but not be the generation of figuring it out too late in life. You know, at 50, I feel like, not that I had half my life, but I have a pretty good chunk of my life left. Yeah. Um, and I still want to do it. I still think that I make a difference. And if I can, if I believe it, if I, if I know it and if I believe it, I'm going to do it. That is such a hopeful mindset. I think all of us here want to take action and do more because it's, it's been a tough year and it's been a year of figuring out how to even take action while also minimizing risks and staying inside. <laughs> so I know that we can't all be on the ground with you right now, but I'm sure there are listeners out there that are interested in getting involved. Yeah, we're on board. How can we help? Well, there's the most important thing that I've been saying for 20 years is to tell people about Catalyst. Each of us told one other person about Catalyst. That quadruples my grassroots reach. <laughs> Catalyst fundraises at a very grassroots level. I mean, we have we had followers before we, we had Facebook. <laughs> and that's really the most important thing about Catalyst is because we're such a grassroots organization is the word of mouth is to tell someone about, hey, there's this crazy lady that <laughs> that is, you know, doing this thing and, and you know, she check it out. And we're kind of all over social media, but that's a big, big part of us. Besides that, if you want to volunteer when it's ready, when we're ready to take volunteers again, that would be awesome. Whether it's at Culture Camp or coming over to Vietnam. But yeah, it's just telling people about us, getting them to our website, getting them to our social media pages, getting them to look at the TEDx film. It's because there's always going to be one person that knows one person that can help us get us to the next level, whether it's with money or with a connection or, you know, so that's, that's what we count on. That's amazing. And where do you see Catalyst going for the next 20 years? It's the same. I mean, I want to work with communities at a very small grassroots level for as long as Catalyst wants to be around, as long as we can have the money and the funds. We currently work with a community that this is our sixth year. Uh, normally, we work with a community five years, but they, as an ethnic minority community, they didn't speak Vietnamese when we first met them. And so they spoke their ethnic language. They're still Vietnamese, but they're one of the minority, they're one of the 52 minority communities in Vietnam. So that language barrier has been a problem. I mean, my fifth grade Vietnamese level is a problem in, in general, but <laughs> at least, <laughs> um, but I don't speak Ragalai either, which is the ethnic families that we work with. So we're probably there for another five years and then we find the next community. Every community that we work with knows that we're going to leave them, knows that there's an, not an end date, but knows that there's an end goal of if we can become self-sustainable, Callus can move on and help the next community. If we don't sell our children, if we don't fall in their poverty, if we can have bathrooms, if we can have access to education, access to water, access to our identity papers, we're going to be okay. Do you ever revisit the communities that Catalyst has worked in in the past? How do you keep up with them to make sure that they are growing? We do the year after. So when we are about to leave a community, we build uh, what we call the community savings plan. Every family has to contribute anything that they can contribute. So, But the minimum is 10000 which is about $0.50, cents, $0.37, cents, I think, a week. And then that 
community savings grows and grows for that full year or two years before we leave. And at the time of departure, we match it. So then that becomes their community bank loan. And then we create a community of um, what we call the core group. And the core group has leaders within the community and they help decide how to, how to make it all happen for their community. By then we've taught them, we've given them all these skills to become their own little NGO themselves, but they're managing themselves and they're taking care of themselves and they don't have to have Caroline choices anymore. They can make their own choices and then they can make their own decisions. And we help in the year afterwards to just be the liaison to, you know, help them make their last decision if they need it or have a mediation if they need it. But they really don't. We, if we did it right, they won't need us at all and we won't have to visit them. They'll have taken care of each other. And that's like you had said earlier, a community takes care of itself. So um, it sounds like y'all do everything. I mean, bathrooms, education, anti-trafficking efforts, bank loans, community development. How does the foundation figure out what the community needs and prioritizes it? We ask them. We literally ask them. So we have a town meeting every quarter or every year, depending on where we are in our goal. And we just ask them what's next. Um, Actually, what we ask them is, do you want us to stay? And some have said, no, we, we're okay. Some have said yes. Well, obviously a lot have said yes. Um, and then they, we asked them what their priorities are. We didn't think bathroom was a priority. We thought education, literacy, vocational training was a priority. And it was the, the elders in the community that said, you know, I'm kind of like, don't want to walk in the middle of the night to the bush anymore to go potty <laughs> to the bathroom. I'm like, oh. Gosh, I didn't even think of that. Like, you know, that you don't so think you, you don't think of that as a Westerner for one, but you don't think of it because you have the privilege of a bathroom when you go home. And here's this 80 year old woman that said that literally said, I've never had a bathroom. I've never had a bathroom with I've never had a thing with walls surrounding me to use it when I'm going to the bathroom. And she said, I just want that. And I'm like, Okay. I mean, we're like, okay, is everyone on board? We would take a vote with the community. And then the community decides who gets the first ones. I mean, they make the big decisions. I just, again, if they said we want a bathroom and they listed 10 things, I would narrow it down to three things and say, here are your Caroline choices. <laughs> what do you want? Um, but bathrooms was number one. Access to water was one a couple years ago where the moms were saying, it takes us three hours to grab two buckets of water from the waterfalls up in the mountains. So six hours round trip. Can you help us? I can do that. (laughs) I can bring you water. (laughs) That's so empowering to ask a community what they need and they get to speak for themselves. Yeah. They've never been asked before. Yeah. There are so many times an organization will come in and try to implement what they know culturally, systemically, and they get it all wrong. And it never empowers the community like asking them does. We, I, I, I never know the, I never had the answer. <laughs> I'm really good with saying, I don't know. <laughs> I never had the answer. I never have enough money, but somehow it has worked out for 20 years. So That's amazing. I'm so for asking the community, Caroline, and I love that you're on the ground doing just that. I think many organizations are just now making the shift to community-centric fundraising and community-centric programming, but it is long overdue. 
Now, before we leave, I was hoping you could share a piece of wisdom with us that you have found through your work. I really want people to truly believe that one person can make a difference. I am literally just one person that had an idea and that was feeling bad about myself and said, I think I need to help. You get the right people to surround you and support you, and those people will carry you. Those people will help you make your dream come true. And those people will become loyal followers and best friends. And, and you don't need a lot. You really don't. And to make that difference. And, and that is our motto. You know, you are the catalyst for hope. You can be that catalyst for the person sitting next to you or the person across the ocean. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Caroline. I have been inspired by your work ever since college and hearing your story for the first time. And I will take all these lessons along with me. Your vision for everyone being a catalyst in their own right is incredibly important and is one of the reasons I started this podcast. So thank you so much. I've had so much fun talking to you today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to hear young voices do something. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. For more information, head to our website at whatgivesproject.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode.